Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You are listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thank you for downloading this episode and the latest installment of the 1916 Rising miniseries. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoyed the last episode too. I would like to remind you guys, as I tend to do, that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and if you would like to investigate what all this means, since I've been talking about it a good bit, I would encourage you to search Agora in iTunes, Google, or elsewhere, and you should be greeted with a load of podcasts sort of along the same vein as When Diplomacy Fails, but not necessarily containing the same type of info. What does that all mean? Well, to give you an example, every month Agora promotes a particular podcaster to you guys, basically so that he gets more downloads or more exposure than anyone else. And in the month of May, fortunately for him, Royfield Brown is our podcaster of the month. And what that means is all of you should search Royfield Brown in Google iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from and feast on his vast array of works. Tell him Zach sent you, or don't, but either way, listen to what he has to offer, because you won't be disappointed. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's get down to business. Episode 11 of the 1916 miniseries. In this episode, we will resume our coverage of the Rising as it ripped through Dublin's city centre, The rumours, the chaos, the looting and the civilians caught in the middle are all a critical part of the story, and it is one we will seek to capture as effectively as possible. By the end of this episode, you should have a better appreciation for the situation that the rebels of 1916 found themselves in, just as the British were preparing to conclude the endeavour and escalate their response. If this sounds good to you, welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents 1916 A special centenary miniseries Exploring the context, characters and controversies Of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history The 1916 Rising
They were shrapnel shells. And the amazing thing was that instead of bullets coming in, it was molten lead, actually molten, which streamed about on the ground when it fell. I was told that the shrapnel was filled with molten wax. The bullets were embedded in wax, and the velocity of the shell through the barrel and through the air caused the mould to melt. As the first of those shells hit the house, the volunteers rushed up and told me about them. I ran some distance, and found an old fellow crawling about in his hands and knees, gathering the lead up as it hardened. I asked him what he was doing, and what he intended to do with the stuff. Souvenirs, he said. Account of Oscar Trainer, Volunteer based in the GPO when the shells first began falling. Wednesday, the 26th of April, 1916. As you know, I am personally in full sympathy with the fundamental objects of the volunteers. However, as your infant movement grows towards the nature of a full-grown militarism, its essence, preparation to kill, grows more repellent to me. Francis Sheehy Skeffington, an open letter to Thomas McDonough, in newspaper The Irish Citizen, May 1915. There was at this time a continuous stream of civilians in flight from the city, families with whatever belongings they could gather, going to relatives who lived outside the city. Some indeed apparently did not know where they were going. Some were terror-stricken, some merely anxious, and not a few wished us success or words of encouragement. Account of Frank Henderson, Irish volunteer who reinforced the GPO on Tuesday the 25th of April, 1916. After taking over strangely unrelated, but mostly easily defensible sections of Dublin city centre, with the obvious exception of the trench digging in Stevens Green Park, the rebels had thrown down a gauntlet to the British. It wasn't necessarily a threat to arm the entire city or country in a nationwide rebellion. This was still a limited affair, and the rebels didn't seem to have any ambition to advance beyond their positions or rid the capital of the British to any considerable degree but it obviously still necessitated a British response. The British commander on the ground, Brigadier General William Lowe, was in full control since Tuesday night, the 25th of April, owing to a decision of the British Lord Lieutenant to declare martial law at that time. In an effort to coordinate some kind of response, Lowe's small contingent of barely 1,200 men matched up in size to the rebels, and he could thus make little real progress until he was reinforced. With this in mind, he awaited the arrival of soldiers from the north and the west, as well as the landing of British soldiers, originally meant for France, in Kingstown, modern-day Dunleary, just outside of Dublin City to the south. With the breakdown in civil order, and the outbreak of looting that followed, Dublin was starting to resemble the scene from Le Miserable more than the beginnings of a rebellion. It isn't hard to imagine the scene of poverty-stricken individuals taking the opportunity to take what the uprising had given them. Affluent shop fronts were broken into, 
and delicate, expensive clothes were seized and worn in a strange mood of defiance, mixed with chaos. Important fuel sources such as coal was stolen from suppliers, while food was also becoming increasingly important, as the armed action effectively shut the city off from the outside, and the last shipments of food had been delivered on Saturday. Apparently, leaders like Patrick Pierce had not accounted for the citizens of Dublin to care more for the material benefits they could accrue for their own lives than his newly declared republic. It was a problem he had ordered addressed, as shops were guarded from opportunistic civilians and barricades were reinforced. When this didn't seem to make much of a difference, Patrick Pierce made the decision to address the people directly, as he had done to launch the rebellion the day before in front of the GPO. On Tuesday afternoon, Pierce ventured out onto Sackville Street and stood in front of Nelson's Pillar, the street's symbolic monument to the fallen admiral, to make the following announcement. The Provisional Government to the Citizens of Dublin The Provisional Government of the Irish Republic salutes the citizens of Dublin on the momentous occasion of the proclamation of a sovereign, independent Irish state, now in course of being established by Irish men-in-arms. The Republican forces hold the lines taken up at 12 noon on Easter Monday, and nowhere, despite fierce and almost continuous attacks of the British troops, have the lines been broken through. The country is rising in answer to Dublin's call, and the final achievement of Ireland's freedom is now, with God's help only a matter of days away. The valour, self-sacrifice and discipline of Irish men and women are about to win for our country a glorious place among the nations. Ireland's honour has already been redeemed. It remains to vindicate her wisdom and her self-control. All citizens of Dublin who believe in the right of their country to be free will give their allegiance and their loyal help to the Irish Republic. There is work for everyone, for the men in the fighting line and for the women in the provision of food and first aid. Every Irish man and Irish woman worthy of the name will come forward to help their common country in her supreme hour. Able-bodied citizens can help by building barricades in the streets to oppose the advance of the British troops. British troops have been firing on our women and on our Red Cross. On the other hand, Irish regiments in the British Army have refused to act against their fellow countrymen. The Provisional Government hopes that its supporters, which means the vast bulk of the people in Dublin, will preserve order and self-restraint. Such looting as has already occurred has been done by hangers-on of the British Army. Ireland must keep her new honour unsmirched. We have lived on to see an Irish Republic proclaimed. May we live to establish it firmly, and may our children and our children's children enjoy the happiness and prosperity which freedom will bring. Signed, on behalf of the Provisional Government, P. H. Pierce, Commanding-in-Chief of the Forces of the Irish Republic and President of the Provisional Government. Yet, Pierce was deluding himself if he expected any kind of strength in his defences to remain. The British were merely preparing for a reinforcement, and once it came they would surely counter-attack. Further concerns for Pierce, despite his defiant tone, would have been the fact that the citizens and businesses of Dublin were doing their part to help the British put down this action in their home city. The Guinness factory famously donated some of its heavy steel drums so that the British could refashion them as kind of makeshift armoured cars, 
While some of the city's pubs provided scores of wooden barrels for the British to take cover behind as they scouted out the rebel positions. On Wednesday the 26th of April, proper reinforcements arrived in Kingstown in the form of British soldiers intended for the Western Front but diverted to Dublin instead. The chaos of the scene is palpable. Once they arrived, they exclaimed their surprise at the perfect English of the French citizens. This merely reflected the fact that Britain was in war mode by 1916, and treated the rising as an extension of that war. How could they not, after all, after Pierce's shady reference to gallant allies in Europe? Perhaps the rising was merely another manifestation of Britain's war with Germany. The soldiers used to fight it were not informed that Dublin was their destination, just as they wouldn't have been informed if they'd been redirected to Russia instead. War was war, and the soldier merely participated in the chess game being played out by the British government against its enemies, which on this occasion existed in Dublin. The soldiers were welcomed as heroes once they landed in Kingstown, since many revellers over the Easter weekend understood from rumour that it was the Germans that had landed in Dublin, and the British had now come to free them from such an enemy action. Here was Britain, helping out their war ally in Ireland. It would have been hard not to cheer if that had been the impression you were under. Yet, even if they had understood the rebels to have acted largely alone in the Rising, citizens of Kingstown and indeed Dublin itself still would have had little love for them. This goes back to what we talked about in previous episodes. The lack of sympathy on the part of the Dublin populace for the Irish rebels is explained by the fact that so many had relatives fighting abroad in the name of the very empire that the rebels declared themselves against, and alongside the very gallant allies that most Irish battled on the Western Front. Ideological differences would have abounded too. Some more learned people seeing this as yet another Fenian uprising which again the public had not asked for, but which disrupted their routines and threatened their lives. The money that wives and other relatives made off the separation allowance was enough to persuade those individuals that the rebels were wrong, since this money was all that separated many from a basic standard of living or the poverty line. It would thus be incredibly unfair to portray these separation wives as unpatriotic and caring only for money, as later Republican authors have tried to do. Thankfully, their claims were unsuccessful, but it does raise an important other issue. The average Dubliner, whether patriot or not, cared about getting by and existing in the world of 1916, by the time that the rebels struck. Whether that meant they were trying to provide for their families, concerned for those that had been struck down by disease, or terrified that the workhouse would claim them as it had their relatives, What we are left with is a picture of Dublin that did not care for the romantic ideals or notions of sovereignty that the rebels espoused. What they cared for was their own lives, subsisting on the provisions that they had at their disposal and trying to get by. It would thus be quite fair to describe men like Pierce as out of touch with the average Dubliner. Had he perhaps asked James Connolly what he thought about the current situation in Dublin's slums, he might have got a better idea of what he had been up against before he decided to act. Pierce had not necessarily counted on Irish apathy or opportunism, in my view though. Instead he had been so preoccupied with first framing his revolution and then launching it, that he, as well as others, forgot to consider what would happen if they launched a revolution and nobody turned up. 
The interest of the average Dubliner had certainly been aroused by the Rising's events by the third day, but interest and curiosity cannot be equated with support. The grim fate of those men who had landed at Kingstown was to be perhaps the most significant armed action of the Rising. When 1,000 Sherwood Foresters made a frontal advance on the position held by the rebels at a place called Mount Street Bridge. It was here, in well dug in positions, that 17 rebels were able to hold off against the entire company of men, who took at least 240 casualties. 22 Irishmen were among those that were gunned down. As General Lowe insisted on repeated frontal assaults despite the Irish holding all the defensive advantages. It is a scene unfortunately representative of what was to come and had already dawned on the Western Front, where foolishly wasteful assaults against unrealistic targets were ordered. The event cost Britain as much as two-thirds of its casualties for the entire event of the Rising. Despite the spirited defence of the rebels though, By the next day on Thursday the 27th of April, the position had been abandoned owing to want of manpower. By the night of Wednesday the tide was already turning despite the losses at Main Street Bridge, and the calling up of the British gunboat Helga to sail up the River Liffey and shell positions of Dublin in the chorus of artillery that had been supplied from other British garrisons ushered in a new phase of the Rising. The unimaginable and completely unaccounted for destruction of Dublin's inner city. Instances of atrocities committed by the British against the Irish population later did become part and parcel of the rising myth, but some genuinely awful things did happen courtesy of the British army that were resident in Dublin. Francis Sheehy Skeffington, a renowned Irish pacifist and humanitarian who had spent the days leading up to his death trying to prevent looting, only to be ridiculed by those in the act, and arrested in the confusion by a British contingent. When he was brought to Portobello Barracks some distance away with six other men, he was summarily executed, for no reason, in cold blood by the commanding officer, whom historian Father Xavier Martin suspected of having a mental health problem. This offending officer, a Captain J.C. Bowen Colthurst, was a war veteran and had been sent home from the front only the year before to his home in Cork, under suspicion that the atmosphere of trench warfare had begun to warp his mind. It certainly seems as though, judging from the exaggeration and fear present in his official report of the death of Francis, that Bowen Colthurst was suffering from a form of PTSD. He wrote... On Tuesday and up to Wednesday morning, rumours of massacres of police and soldiers from all parts of Dublin were being constantly sent to me from different sources. Among the rumour reached me that 600 German prisoners at Old Castle had been released and armed and were marching on Dublin. I also heard that the rebels in the city had opened up depots for the supply and issue of arms, and that a large force of rebels intended to take Portobello Barracks, which was only held by a few troops. We also held in the barracks a considerable number of officers and men who had been wounded by the rebels. Rumours of risings all over Ireland and of a large German-American and Irish-American landing in Galway were prevalent. I knew of the rebellion which had been preached in Ireland for years past and of the popular sympathy with rebellion. I knew also that men on leave home from the trenches, though unarmed, 
had been shot like dogs in the streets of their own city, simply because they were in Cahi. I also heard that wounded soldiers home for convalescence had been shot down also. On the Wednesday morning of the 26th of April, all this was in my mind. I was very much exhausted and unstrung after practically a sleepless night, and I took the gloomiest view of the situation, and felt that only desperate measures would save the situation. It was in this state of mind that he had spotted Francis Sheehy Skeffington, who was travelling home on Tuesday night. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. and followed by a crowd of hecklers who he had earlier tried to prevent looting. Sheehy Skeffington was travelling home after attending a meeting to prevent looting which he had organised, and which he had advertised by placing the following flyers across the city. When there is no regular police in the streets, it becomes the duty of citizens to police the streets themselves, and to prevent such spasmodic looting as has been taking place in a few streets. Civilians, men and women, who are willing to cooperate to this end, are asked to attend at Westmoreland Chambers, over at Eden Brothers, at 5 o'clock this Tuesday afternoon. Francis Sheehy Skeffington and a few others were arrested, taken to Portobello Barracks, and the next morning shot in the back of a nearby shop, after being escorted there. Perhaps Bowen Coulthurst had truly lost it by the time he ordered his company to shoot Francis and a number of others in the back of a shop garden. Whatever the reasoning, Francis Sheehy Skeffington quickly became emblematic of the kind of martyr that the Rising created. Later myths would conjure up an image of him as selfless, proud and a defiant individual, since that was the picture that fitted in with the image of sacrifice that was being created. The reality was that Francis Sheehy Skeffington was one among many individuals cut down in their prime during the Rising, because they had the misfortune to be in the wrong place at the wrong time of the rebellion that they hadn't asked for, but had been launched in their name. Francis and his wife Hannah had spent many years campaigning for a range of issues, ranging from women's rights to achieving Irish independence by means of non-violent civil disobedience. A man, and a couple well before their time, Francis had adopted his wife's surname Sheehy when they married in 1903, signifying his own commitment to advancing women's rights, in particular in gaining them the vote. 
Francis went on to basically be present in the city whenever a violent episode happened, such as the 1913 lockout. He was on the streets giving aid to an injured worker in that event when he realised more police were on their way with batons raised again. He only forced the policeman that was charging towards him to halt, he later claimed, by calling out that policeman's number and rank. Such experiences one would have expected to lead Francis down a more radical path, but he never abandoned his pacifism. He had become vice chairman of the Irish Citizens Army, but thereafter left the group when he realised it was not to be used for purely defensive purposes. Upon the outbreak of the war, he was imprisoned for campaigning against it for six whole months. Upon his release, he returned to Dublin and resumed his humanitarian works, while he continued to write for his newspaper, The Irish Citizen. By 1916, he'd accumulated something of reputation for his acts, but this was not enough to make looters listen to reason when he told them off in the beginning of the Rising, or to rouse significant interest in the meetings he chaired to stop the looting. Coming home from one such a meeting, no doubt a little deflated at its low attendance, Francis was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and just like that, Ireland lost a critical figure. The ongoing conflict within Dublin escalated after Wednesday, as increased shellfire from both Trinity College and the aforementioned gunboat brought new pressures to bear on the rebels, which the likes of James Connolly hadn't expected. Connolly and others had taken it for granted that Britain would not bombard its second city, since the propaganda cost for doing something like that would surely have outweighed the benefits. Yet, what Connolly and the rest of the rebels did not anticipate was the extent to which Britain's First World War experience was shaping its response to the Rising. After seeing the results and impact of shellfire on Trent's positions during the war, the British administration did not take long to determine that such an efficient weapon would work wonders in a compact city situation. Britain didn't seem to view Dublin as an important city within the fabric of its empire, in other words. Its military men didn't have the patience to fight running battles with the rebels and smoke them out, until eventually they would be flushed out. Instead, it made sense to use the advantages that they had gained against the rebels, in artillery and heavy weapons. So they did. It was this kind of straightforward military thinking, shaped by the experiences of the war, that was brought to bear on Dublin. One citizen, a Mrs Norway, soon to be a war widow and an owner of a tobacconist's shop around the corner from the trench digging on Stephen's Green, reasoned that The GPO has such valuable records and the contents of the safe are so precious that they will not raise it to the ground if they can help it. But it has so much subterranean space that would afford cover to thousands of Sinn Feiners, that we hear they are going to fire some gas shells into it, and then rush in. This extract reveals one incredible development from the Rising's events, which would soon become a dominant theme. Sinn Féin, Arthur Griffith's alternative political movement, established a decade before the Rising to provide a new choice for Irish voters, and advocating a dual monarchy system originally, had come to be associated with the Rising. Since the progress made with the 1911 Parliament Act and the apparent imminence of Home Rule, Arthur Griffith had voiced his support for his colleagues in that movement, but he had also matured politically in other areas. 
seeing the coming likelihood of civil war as a terrible stain on Irish life, he helped found the Proportional Representation Society of Ireland in 1911. In the hope that by adopting such an even-handed voting system, which was geared towards enabling minorities to have greater representation, that both Unionists and Nationalists would be satisfied in a newly independent Ireland. The outbreak of the war came at precisely the wrong time in his view, since it would distract Ireland from the progress she seemed so destined for. On the one hand he understood John Redmond's position, but on the other he could not reconcile his own feelings for Irish neutrality and sovereignty with those of taking part alongside Britain. Arthur Griffith had also led Sinn Féin through the 1913 logout, where he had sided with the employers against Jim Larkin. Griffith had been suspected of a tendency to be overtly conservative and willing to compromise with authoritative figures. This did not endear him to the IRB's more radical leadership members, who had already begun infiltrating Sinn Féin with the aim of establishing a more dissident wing within it. This dissident wing of Sinn Féin made regular contributions to the newspaper Irish Freedom, and sought to pressure Griffith to abandon the Sinn Féin official policy of dual monarchy, and to replace it with republicanism, but Griffith did not budge. Though Griffith personally exuded a more modest and pacifist ideology, the dissident elements within his party did not, and these were often the individuals that were the loudest and would stick in the public's mind most effectively. It was made more confusing by the fact that membership within Sinn Féin overlapped with the Gaelic League, the Ancient Order of Hibernians and, of course, the Irish Volunteers. To some less interested citizens, the presence of so many groups all apparently agitating for the same goals was confusing, so they lumped the groups colloquially into a single term. Fenians would probably have made more sense as a term, considering what Sinn Féin came to be associated with, but perhaps because Griffith's group was more politically outgoing, it became more popular and renowned. Sinn Féiners soon became a catch-all term for anyone professing membership of the Volunteers, the Gaelic League, or any nationalist Irish grouping that hadn't expressed support for the war. This is a fact echoed by Claire Wills in her book GPO Dublin. Although Arthur Griffith's separatist political organisation Sinn Féin was not behind the rising, it was no surprise that the majority of Dubliners assumed they were living through a Sinn Féin rebellion. Not only did much of the insurgents' rhetoric match Sinn Féin manifestos, but several prominent rebels were members of Sinn Féin as well as the volunteers. What undoubtedly cemented this slang term as a societal fact was the media's take on the events of the rising that followed, and their referral to it as a Sinn Féin rebellion. Dublin had begun to look like a war zone by the end of Thursday the 27th of April. Food was running dangerously low across the rebel-held areas, since food had not been imported into Dublin since Saturday. The constant shelling had levelled and gutted a number of buildings, but it also caused another sight. The spectacle of large fires engulfing the shops and houses where citizens had once lived, worked and shopped. It added to the hellish atmosphere for those that were caught up in it, but to some citizens of Dublin that were still attempting to figure out what was actually happening, the rest of the city was relatively safe, to the extent that people could be seen gathering on street corners only a few metres away, discussing what was going on. 
Despite the possession of the communications centre of Dublin, the rebels and indeed the British soldiers that met them seemed altogether reluctant to actually inform the wider populace about what was afoot. This left the door open to speculation of course, some of it as wild as it was amusing. To the people living in Ireland, either in Dublin or on the other side of the country in Mayo, the lack of proper news was frustrating though. To others it was a good sign, since no news surely meant good news. This was especially apt for individuals within the volunteers, who don't forget happened to take part in the rising without any real knowledge of the end game, the odds of success, or the coordination with other units in the country, why they were rising at all, and whether they could expect German help. Patrick Colgan, after marching from the university town of Maynooth near Dublin with his volunteer regiment, recalled that amidst the rumours, I was thrilled to think the Germans had selected Kildare to land in. It never struck me that County Kildare, being in land, it wasn't possible at that time to land there. The atmosphere of excitement and rumour reached Irish writer and friend of WB Yeats, Catherine Tynan, who lived in Mayo at the time of the Rising. She later recalled how the first sign that something was up was shown by the fact that no letters were delivered on the Tuesday, after which time the rumour mill cranked up to 90. One imagined the spiked helmets coming in a line above the tops of the hedgerows, she recalled, while her friend insisted that The rumours point to a German landing in Dublin Bay and on the Nace Road. There's been a big fight in Limerick and the Pope has sent his blessing. Whatever the impact rumours had on the morale of men holding on in Dublin as their position grew more tenuous, Patrick Pearce did his best to rally those that remained. On Tuesday evening, after welcoming the arrival of 65 men from the north of the city to their by then still standing HQ in the GPO, Pearce made the following stirring pronouncement, according to those present at the time. In the course of a few hours, all will be fighting for our freedom in the streets of our city, and that victory will be ours, even though it might be that victory will be found in death. When we are all wiped out, people will blame us for everything, condemn us, but only for this protest the war would have ended and nothing would have been done. After a few years, they will see the meaning of what we tried to do. One wonders if Patrick Pierce remained comfortable with his decision, or if he grappled with the series of decisions that now led him to be the centrepiece of this rebellion, which had apparently taken Dubliners unawares and unwilling to help out. It is possible to put his final sentence, that people would in time see the meaning of what we tried to do, down to defiance, but Pierce did not expect to emerge from the experience of the Rising alive and as the week wore on he would have reckoned that even if he were not killed by a stray bullet or exploding shell, once captured the British would never let him walk away from the endeavour. I believe it is more useful, if a bit dramatic, to see Pierce's claim here as representative of the national treatment of his character post-mortem. What I mean by that is, Pierce had left so much writings detailing his ambitions and dreams, he'd emphasised and dwelt heavily on the idea of blood sacrifice, By seeing the meaning of what we tried to do, he wasn't merely speaking prophetically, but bargaining that after his fate had been sealed, other patriots would see his sacrifice and understand his motives by exploring the treasure trove of materials that he had left behind to justify himself and the rising.
In the absence of initial information provided by the media, a mere three lines in the Irish Times as opposed to daily coverage in the New York Times, speculation had become the order of the first few days of the Rising. Into this vacuum was an abundance of letters, written by rebels and civilians trying to piece together the chaos. One in particular was a letter written to a dear mummy by a volunteer, and later confiscated upon the surrender. It read, I'm quite used to being under fire now, and have even shaved while the big guns were going. I lost my knapsack, but have since got an overcoat and a safety razor. Of course, there are plenty of blankets and towels and other things here. I don't know where the boss is. They say he is at HQ, which is of course the GPO, over which are now flying the green flag and the republican flag. According to international law, Ireland is now a republic, so I expect it won't be long till we get some help from Germany and maybe America. I heard the Irish brigade from Berlin, 3,000 strong, has landed in the west. We are doing very well here, and affairs over the city are satisfactory to us. I suppose you wondered what all the fires were. I never saw such a sight. I hear Father Flanagan is at HQ and I am going across to get him to deliver this to you. Fellows are going to confession to him. No casualties at all here. I stop now. I am going to try and send some money to you. I might be able to get some. I expect it won't be long till you see me again. Pray for me. Best love to you all and yourself, Mummy. From Charlie. Unfortunately for men like Charlie, there was no prospect of support from Germany. While the Irish Brigade, made up from Irish-born prisoners of war in German prisoner-of-war camps and orchestrated by Roger Casement and Joseph Plunkett, would also fail to materialise. The international law that Charlie refers to probably means the fact that the rebels had held on for longer than 48 hours, which to some amateur theorists within the Rising meant that they were now entitled to political representation in the event of peace negotiations. This idea of holding on for the sake of international recognition was one born in the 1867 Fenian Uprising, wherein the goal had been to draw attention to the Irish action and bring American or Russian pressure to bear on the United Kingdom. Just as in 1867, this hope would be dashed as monumentally unrealistic, the British were closing in on the rebel positions. As the fires spread and the shells rained down overhead, Dublin came to look more and more like a scene from the Western Front. As our friend, Mrs Norway, recounted in a letter to her relatives, If you look at pictures of Ypres or Levon after the bombardment, it will give you some idea of the scene. You will see such a sight as you will never see in your life unless you go to Belgium. This reflected the reality for both Britain and Ireland. After having engaged in total war for over a year and a half, Britain could not fight a limited response or a light counterinsurgency. It was all or nothing. Just like the fields of Flanders, the British were too invested in Ireland to allow rebels to remain in the city, or to worry themselves with petty concerns like the destruction of property. The destruction, as far as London was concerned, was a by-product of the Irish betrayal and moods continued to stiffen. On Thursday, the 27th of April, General Sir John Maxwell was appointed Commander-in-Chief of the British forces in Ireland. Maxwell, thanks to the passing of martial law the previous Tuesday, now held the highest rank on the island of Ireland, 
that of military governor. It was Maxwell who believed that the civil administration in Ireland had gotten soft, and it was Maxwell who would be responsible for determining the British policy towards the rebels going forward. Additionally, it was Maxwell who was charged with concluding this little rebellion, and punishing those that had acted so treasonously. Faced with such responsibilities, Maxwell would go on to make the greatest error of the British administration in Ireland, since perhaps the Ulster plantations. It would be because of the actions of Maxwell, not Pierce, Connolly, Tom Clark or others, that the rebels would be upheld as martyrs rather than common criminals. It would be because of Maxwell that Britain would fall into the propaganda trap, so meticulously created by Pierce and others. By falling in, Maxwell would put the rebels down with convincing force, but in the process he would set ablaze the Anglo-Irish relationship which had endured for the past century, and he would light a fire under the Irish populace that neither he nor London had accounted for. In the next episode, we will see his actions play out in Ireland. See you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.